Wreaking havoc. Wreaking havoc. News, interviews, and more. We just reek of Huntsville Havoc Hockey. Hey, welcome back for another Wreaking Havoc podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for the support you've given the show through your kind words, encouragement, and, of course, your listenership. We've got another fun episode for you this week. Thor Pitts was able to get together with Havoc defenseman Dominic Procopio last week for a phone visit. That's up next on the Reek and Havoc podcast. Got something to say? Put it on a t-shirt or hoodie or apron or even an iPhone case. Just go to daddyoscustomtees.com and make it happen. Look through their selection of ready-made designs or make one of your own. Check out their special hockey designs, too. With Daddy-O's Custom Tees, you can truly have it your way. Look for Daddy-O's Custom Tees on Facebook, follow them on Twitter or Instagram, or go online to daddyoscustomtees.com. That's D-A-D-D-Y-O-S, custom, T-E-E-S, dot com. Daddy-O's Custom Tees, they've got your back or front. Let's go in the slot. Welcome hockey fans and Huntsville Havoc fans to another episode of In the Slot with the Reekin' Havoc podcast. My name is Laura Pitts and I'm excited to be back with you for yet another fun interview about all things Havoc hockey. And we are so thrilled so far for all the support that we have received from fans and listeners. We really appreciate everything that you guys are doing and saying. Um, this is what makes it a lot of fun for us. And so we're just happy to have everybody on board with it. And today's conversation welcomes Defensive Havoc player number two, Dominic Procopio. Dominic is from Gross Point, Michigan, and has been a part of the Havoc family for two seasons. He's played 106 games with Havoc, scored three goals, and 32 assists. Following the 2022-2023 season, he was named to the SVHL second all-star team. Dominic earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Massachusetts Lowell, where he majored in philosophy and double minored in Italian and political science. And recently, um, just this past May of 2023, he graduated from the University of Alabama in Huntsville, Alabama, where he earned his master's degree in English, focusing on Italian-American literature. Hey, we're really happy to have you here today, Dom. Thank you so much and welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Like I was saying, I listened to the one with Dar, and it was uh, it went over really well. So I'm really excited to be here. Yes, thank you so much. So you're in the off season right now. How is is there an off season? Do you guys really have an off season, or what does off season look like? Let me ask that question. Yeah, so um, it kind of just depends. You know, uh, obviously didn't get the result we were looking for in the playoffs. Um, but so when the season ends, we usually hang out in Huntsville for. Some, it depends on the guy. Some guys spend a couple of days, some guys spend about a week. So I think a, a week's fair for the amount of time. And then kind of go home wherever you're staying in the summer. So I'm back at home in uh, the Detroit area. And yeah, so I guys either start working or they start doing whatever. I, I don't start working until June 17th. So I'm just kind of on a little mini vacation. Just went to Italy for 10 days and then i um, going to go see a buddy Um for the game one Stanley cup game in Vegas on Saturday uh, and then go to Orlando for his bachelor party. And then work starts and, you know, then you start training and it's a long off season. So you got to give yourself some time to enjoy things because the season's so long. 
So you said that you start working on the 17th. So what does work look like? It's not hockey work, I'm assuming. It's something oh, different. it is, yeah. It's, okay. uh, I actually uh, coach like youth players uh, in Motor City Hockey. Uh, nice. Is the, uh, is the company. I work for Rich Mahal. He's a great dude. And, uh, yeah, I'm fortunate enough to go coach um, all summer and uh, make enough money doing that to – you to supplement everything. So it's, uh, it's really like I'm not working at all. So it's good. It's awesome. When you're out there with those kids, like what's the age range that you're coaching? Uh, anything from like learn to play four to five to like high schools. So it varies. So it's fun. So when you see them out there, you're helping them, you're teaching them these things. Do you think about yourself? Like you were that once that kid out there trying to learn and, and how do you kind of like process that? You know, you're instilling some really cool stuff in them that they're taking away. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely full circle a little bit because, you know, it doesn't feel too long ago you were learning to play. Um, but for me, I, I enjoy um, kind of giving some insight uh, to, to younger kids, just simple stuff. I mean, at a younger age, we just want them to have fun and take away some stuff for the season. Once they get older, like middle school, high school, that's where we can really kind of push them and, and train them. But, yeah, it's crazy. It doesn't seem that long ago. Time's kind of flying. So, um but yeah, it's uh, it's really enjoyable when you we work with a kid all summer and then uh, you know they come back the next summer and they're excited to work with you all summer again because you know it's their off season too, right? So mm-hmm. it, I always uh, always appreciate that. Just good guys, good kids, eager to learn and and, and enjoying it. So. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, one of the things that we want to make sure that we do on our in the slot segments, especially with players, is we really want to know what your stories are. There's a lot of hockey players on the Havoc team that, you know, you guys come from really cool backgrounds. You have interesting things that have happened to you that have have kind of driven your um, pathway down here to Huntsville. And so today, tell the the, the Havoc fans about your story. I mean, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What what was life like as a kid and things like that? Yeah, I grew up uh, St. Clair Shores, Michigan, Gross Point, Michigan. They're right next to each other. Suburb about 20 minutes outside of Detroit. Um, yeah, I mean, I had a really good childhood. Uh, I have a younger brother, Giovanni. Um, so it was just me and him growing up, and and we were fortunate enough to live in a neighborhood with like a really cool grass cul-de-sac. So I, you know, from ages like maybe six, he was three years younger, so he'd be like three or four, all the way to like twelve, thirteen. We'd be out every day in the summer, you know, no sitting around playing video games. Really, we're just out every day playing soccer, baseball, football, road hockey, whatever, uh, really active, bunch of kids in the neighborhood. So that was fun. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, mom and dad always, you know, looked after us. Uh, both of us played hockey at a high level for a long time. So very fortunate um, financially for the sacrifices, you know, they made and and kind of just, you know, propelled me. And so the hardworking you know, hard work ethic in me because, you know, come from a pretty blue collar background, not a lot of wiggle room financially. So never really at a young age was able to take it for granted. Uh, so that's maybe why I like school so much because mom was uh, always made sure I'd have A's to play hockey. <laughs> so yeah, um, she instilled kind of that accountability and, and discipline. I mean, a really young age and um, very fortunate for that. But yeah, the child was great. Younger brother uh, grew up playing with him and, you know, couldn't ask for anything better, really. So when did hockey become the sport of choice? When was that moment when you're like, we're playing hockey, I'm on the rink, we're not outside playing it, but like you're in it, you're uniform, all those things? Um, honestly, I mean, it's, it's always the sport for me. Um, 
it was always like everything revolved around hockey. So like, you know, as I got older, I, I started playing pretty competitive lacrosse on like middle school and high school age. And it always be, you know, you miss uh, a lacrosse game for a hockey practice. Right. So, or I played middle school basketball I'd miss basketball games for a hockey practice. So for me, I always just loved playing it uh, no matter when. And it was always just kind of the sport for me. And I think I really kind of kicked it into gear about 15, 16, when I realized that this is something I can try and pursue and, and take it to the, the farthest end for myself. And as a 15, 16 year old with that mindset, what did you have to do internally, personally, you know, mentally to say, Hey, there's some things that I, I have to put to the side if I'm going to pursue this to be, really good at it and then really successful in in everything. Yeah. For me, it was, you know, it always had that mentality of hockey kind of was the most important thing um, almost to a fault sometimes. Like, but um, like in high school, um, you know, I I was very fortunate to have a very good like social life, good high school experience than, you know, typical four year awesome. But I don't think I made a dance to like, I think I got to go to prom junior year and senior year and maybe my senior homecoming and like football games, you know, social events through the high school. I wasn't really too involved with because I'd be in Chicago, Minnesota, playing a tournament in Detroit locally. Um, Yeah. Did any of that that bother you as a kid or were you just like in the game? You didn't really think about it. uh, No, for me, I mean, you know, being in high school and, and kind of like, you know, kind of having fun with everybody. Um, it kind of gave me a good way to navigate kind of like the do's and don'ts of life. You know, you're always going to have people that in your friend group that, you know, maybe like to party too hard or do things that aren't too good for them all the time. And for me, hockey was always kind of my way out of like, you know, a peer pressure situation or something kind of sticky. And and everyone kind of left me alone too, because they knew that I was pursuing something. So I, I did have good friends in that sense. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just hockey was kind of everything. And it was like that at a young age. And I think, you know, mom was big with instilling the importance of like, hey, you know, you can have fun, but if you screw up and do something you're not supposed to, like it, your hockey's over too, right? So again, like the consequences um, when you're trying to pursue something like that can be a little more high stakes. But that sets up a good foundation for you, for anyone really going forward to know that you know, I put a lot of effort into it. There's a lot of accountability and now you're on your own and that accountability seems like it's still sticking. It's still there. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Um, yeah, everything I try and do, I, I try and, you know, stay accountable to myself and, you know, it's hard because, you know, none of us are perfect. There's definitely days where you don't want to, you know, maybe work out when you're supposed to in the summer, or maybe you want to have an extra couple of beers you're not supposed to or something like that, you know? So it's, it's always a good to have a little bit of discipline, not like I'm a Navy SEAL or anything, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about a little bit of the other leagues you played in. So I know you played in college. How was the college Mm -hmm. experience going from, you know, high school and then now you're kind of in like the sort of big leagues because you're in the college area of it. Yeah. For me, college is kind of a rough go hockey wise to be, to be completely honest. Um, you know, I played junior hockey in Louisiana and that's where I met my fiance and um, loved it, really enjoyed it there. Kind of went out on a high winning a championship as my, my last year junior captain, all the accolades. So um got an opportunity to play at UMass Lowell, which is in Hockey East, which is a pretty strong division one hockey conference. And, you know, I've always been one to go for it. Um, So I went and you know what? It just, it wasn't for me. I mean, I enjoyed the people. I'm some of my best friends there. Like I'm going to see my buddy this weekend. 
my roommate for three years. I'm his best man. He's one of my best friends. But the hockey aspect, it was tough. Uh, not playing a bunch out of the lineup most of the time. And it was kind of a mental battle for three years, um, you know. But at the end of the day, I was able to get a really good education, kind of find my love for kind of like, you know, literature, philosophy, kind of the arts and and. I never knew that about myself till I went to school. So, I mean, there's always a silver lining um, in the hockey part. It's not something to be bitter about. It just is what it is. I mean. How did so. you stay encouraged? Because you could have said when you got through with your undergraduate and you got out of that, I'm done playing hockey. This was the bad experience. Let's just go do something different. But you're still playing. So something has kind of like what brought that back to life for you? I mean, I've always wanted to play pro hockey um, as a kid, even, you know, everyone wants to play in the NHL and, and it's always good to have those goals. And I, I don't think anyone should ever tell you not to, even at 26, who knows, crazier things have happened. But, um, you know, for me, I just love playing the game so much. Like even when I wasn't playing in games at school, I'd be on the ice practicing and doing extra and just trying to get better every day. And for me to kind of call it after those three years of kind of, you know, some adversity, kind of being injustice to myself. I, I worked really hard away, you know, by myself, you know, just doing things that no one sees you doing just to get better. And, um, you know, I, I didn't want it to end there. I knew that it, it wasn't going to end like that. I, I put so much time and, and effort into just having a chance to play college hockey and pro hockey that I just felt, you know, if I quit then I, I'd be very bitter and regretted the rest of my life. And, and then I found Huntsville and it's been, it's been amazing. So, well, that was the next thing I wanted to ask is all it seems like all these roads tend to lead down to Huntsville, Alabama. So how did you end up with the Havoc? How did Huntsville become home for you now? Uh, it's kind of a kind of a complicated situation, but I'll try and explain it the best I can. Um, so when I left UMass Lowell, um, I graduated in three years. So in NCAA hockey before there now you can transfer one time for free. And you don't have to sit out. But before that, you had to, you could only transfer for free if you, your fourth year was your grad school year. So I was planning to do that just to get out of there. It wasn't a good fit for me hockey wise, and it was what it was. So I got done in three years. And then my coach from junior hockey, who I have a very good relationship with, was the assistant coach at UAH. So when I left UMass Lowell, he called me and he's like, Do you want to come to UAH? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know, so they worked out the grad school and everything. And um, that was set. And I was really excited. I was coming to Huntsville either way. Um, and then um, he called me about a week and a half later and he was like, the program went under. Oh, no. And I was like, what? And he's like, the program's no longer a thing. I'm looking for a job. I'm so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so then I was, I was scrambling, um, kind of freaking out a little bit. And, um, and then through, um, my brother's assistant coach in junior hockey, who used to coach at UAH, who lives there now, Gavin Morgan, really, really good dude. He's a big, he's, I think he's fairly prominent in the Huntsville hockey scene for youth and stuff. Um, he's talking to him and he knew Glenn. So he's like, let me shoot Glenn a text. So he shot Glenn a text. I'm driving home from Louisiana with my family. Glenn calls me. We talked for 40 minutes. Um, and then a week later I signed in Huntsville and then I got very fortunate because the university still honored my scholarship that my assistant coach gave me from UAH because the program went under. So I'm very fortunate of UAH for doing that. So essentially I was going to grad school and then playing for the Havoc 
And um, yeah, that's how I ended up there. It was a lot of moving parts. It's a very complicated story, uh, but I'm very thankful it worked out the way it did because, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. <laughs> what were those first impressions of Coach Dottilio when he called you and you had that conversation? Uh, for me, Glenn was Glenn was very frank and blunt. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of coaches in any level at any sport that'll promise players a bunch of things to get them to show up places. Uh, and Glenn didn't do that. And kind of being a little bit weary from school of just you know coaching and, and all that. Um, with Glenn, um, you know, he's a straight shooter. You know, he's like, I'm not guaranteeing you anything. I think you could help our team. You know, I want you to come to training camp. Nothing's guaranteed, blah, 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 blah. So for me, I'm a guy who sees that and I'm like, oh, crap. Like, if I don't make this team, I don't know. I might be done, right? So that gives me – that motivates me to come into camp and, and try and be the best player I could be uh, instead of kind of being shying away from that. And uh, I respect that a lot of from Glenn. You know, it's very easy for him to be like, hey, come down. You're going to do this and that. And then I get there and I'm not doing that. And then I'm angry with him. He's always, for my two years with Glenn, been – upfront, honest, and, and very personable. So, And what was it like being under him then as a player? Once you got out of that, you were under him as a player, his leadership, his coaching style, just a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, I think college hockey and pro hockey are very different in the sense that college is a lot more structured. Um, you know, you're only playing 30 games and your, your coach and your coaching staff really kind of dictate a lot that you do um, just because of the way it's set up you know, you're on campus and all that. You, you really don't have, you have freedom, but you're not, you know, you're not playing pro where you see Glenn and Stu for two, three hours a day, and then you go do whatever you want to do. Right. So for Glenn, I think my two years under Glenn, they, they were awesome because Glenn, Glenn treated you like a person and a player. So he never really, you know, discounted you if you were not playing well or out of the lineup and kind of just like shunned you. He was always, always very good with all the guys. Um, and, you know, he, he treated you like a professional. So, you know, I think Dar said, you know, how to motivate you, right? He, he gets the best out of you and mm-hmm. he understands everyone's personality really well. So if I'm having a bad couple of games, he can call me in and kind of be like, what the heck? Like, you know, you got to be a lot better than that. You know, maybe someone else would be shy away from that. So he knows how to manage everybody. And, you know, he's very uh, respectable to his players and he treats you like a pro and, you know, puts the onus on you to be taking care of yourself. So. You also spent a little bit of time in the ECHL league. Just you got called up for a couple of games, I think. And so I wanted you to reflect on the calling up experience. What is that like when you get called up? Um, you're, you, you sit on pins and needles to figure out what's next. So you're called up, then you're back. I mean, how does that, for, especially for those of us who don't quite understand the process, what is that like? Uh, yeah, for me, it was a little bit goofy um, just because it was my first year in pro. I think I was in Huntsville for like six, seven weeks. And then I got an opportunity to go to Worcester, but I was also in school in person at UAH. So when they initially called, I told them I can't come. Like I have school and, and I'm not going to throw away my grad school to go play in the East Coast. It's, you know, just kind of putting the education uh, at the forefront there and they were really nice and receptive and they were like, okay, you know, cause they wanted me to sign a contract and come up for the year, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay, I can't do that. So then they call me back like three hours later and they're like, okay, so we have five D we need you for three games and we'll send you back in the week. Can you do a week? Um, and I, 
I wanted to try it. I was new to pro hockey. I was like, you know what? This will be great. Um, and my experience in Worcester was great. They were first class to me, treated me well. I got to play all my games, but my situation is a little different because I knew I was coming back to Huntsville and yeah. I was actually excited to <laughs> come back to Huntsville. Well, you um, had your, your schooling was waiting. I know what that's yeah, like. You've got to be missed, in class. I so. missed Glenn and Stu and, and all the guys. And then, um, you know, so I had an end date, but I've, I've talked to a lot of guys who played in the league and I'm sure you'll get some more on that have been up and it's pretty volatile. You never know, right. Especially as a call up, um, nothing's really guaranteed you even more so there. So you could be there for three weeks. You could be there for one day and someone gets sent down from the American league to the East coast league. And next thing you know, you just drove out to Idaho and you're coming back to Huntsville. So it's is just it, kind of the way it works. Well, is the calling up process something that you guys want to happen? Like you're, I mean, obviously everybody wants to make it to the big league, to, to the top, to the NHL yeah. top level. But when you, you I mean, you're just getting settled too. So I can only imagine I've not only been here. I may not even really know my way, nobody, really anything going on. Yeah. You get called up. So I'm just curious about, is this like you guys are, some of them want to, or it doesn't really matter if I go or go, if I don't, I'm still playing hockey. Um, yeah, it depends. Everyone's different. Like, you know, you've had guys on Huntsville, like, you know, uh, Nolan, Dar, Ty, uh, even Cy, like, you know, all those guys have, would have no trouble at the East Coast level, right? But then it kind of comes down to, like, what do you want out of the game? Um, so if you want to go and try and take it to the highest level of pro in the U.S., you can. You can try and go to the East Coast and climb up from there and you know what? It's going to be a dogfight. I don't. I think people who have done it can tell you that you're going to be moving a lot. You're going to be kind of nomadic. There's not going to a lot of not going to be a lot of uh, stability in your life, and kind of uh, you know part of the course with that route. But um, you know, other guys, other guys enjoy playing hockey. You know, they like their roles in Huntsville, um, whatever they are, and some have no interest to go up because it's going to be different. You know, if you're a 20 goal scorer and Glenn's playing every shift and then you go up to an East coast team, you might be playing two, three minutes a night. You might be in and out of the lineup. You don't really know. Right. Yeah. So it's, it can be a deterrent for some guys. And, and the longer I feel like guys stay in the league, whatever place they kind of have a good gig where they're at, you know, you don't see a lot of guys, uh, you know, over 27, 28, really climbing the ladder from the SPHL all the way to the NHL. So I think um, it's it's what guys want out of the game. For me, I enjoy playing. I enjoy playing a lot. And I know that I have the opportunity to do that in Huntsville. And um, I like living there. So for me, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't take a call up ever again, but it would have to be something almost too good to be true where yeah. – you know, but there's no guarantees in anything and even pro hockey. So, you know, it, it is what it is, but you know, there's the stability in Huntsville for a lot of guys and they enjoy that. So. Well, I was going to kind of transition transition to that and ask you about that stability in terms of, I mean, I asked um, Rob this question too, about this family aspect aspect that comes from being in Huntsville, being not only a part of the team, but with the ownership, there's just like this magic. I feel like that exists in the Havoc family. And so, and you're laughing and smiling because I feel like I'm hitting on that correctly. There's just like this magic that sits there. And I wanted to kind of get your perspective on that, especially you're, you've not been with the group as long as others. So within your two years, what have you felt from that or seen in that? Yeah, that might be why it's so hard for guys to leave. Um, That's what I was wondering about. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good thing, right? Um, Like it starts with the ownership 
with Keith and Becky Jeffries. I mean, they're, they're great to us. Um, you know, they provide us with everything we need and more, um, you know, they're always looking out for the players and, and the staff and, you know, doing nice things for us. They don't have to do like buying us dinner on the road and, and all these kind of things. And, you know, they're very active within the organization too. So, you know, I, I probably see Becky, you know, once a week and, it's kind of like she always says she's my Huntsville mom, but she's right. You know, she's mm-hmm. it's very it's a very family aspect. And then the staff and, and everyone, it's, it's just honestly, I think it stems from good people, um, mm-hmm. you know, and they're good at their good at what they do. But there's not really there's not a bad person in the organization. Everyone's a good person. Mm-hmm. So it just becomes a lot easier to, to get along with everybody and and there's so many people in our organization from the office staff to the ownership to the coaches, to the players that, you know, they give you their shit off their back. If you're in a bind, you can call them. It's, it's much more than uh, kind of like what people would imagine, like a work relationship is, you know, within the players in the locker room, it's very fraternal. It's, it's kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, it's like a drug, right. When you're around the guys all the time. And, and that's what guys I think miss the most when they retire too. So everything's good starts with good people and they've done a great job at at doing that. So. And we have you coming back next season. And so I'm curious about your thoughts on the new season with Stu and Ty. They're taking over coaching. You've um, already, you know, kind of been under Stu in some sort of aspect, but and Tyler's been a teammate, but what do you already anticipate or know you're kind of going to see from them? And um, how do you think that's going to, you know, what's going to change or maybe stay the same um, or even grow to become better? Yeah, I think it'll be good. Um, You know, obviously going to miss Glenn. I only got him for two years, but, um, you know, I feel very fortunate to be a part of his last year coaching. And like I said, it didn't end the way we wanted it to, but my two years with Glenn were awesome. Um, And Stu handles the the D usually. So I've got to know Stu really well and we have a really good relationship. Um, So I I think with Stu, you know, I haven't really talked to him too much, um, but he might have a, a different direction. He maybe he wants the team to go as in like, you know, style of play and things. I, I think the one thing that Glenn has done is in, in, instilled an amazing culture within the organization, especially the players and, and a set of expectations for a Havoc player um, are a little bit higher, I'd, I'd say, than other places around the league. And it's not a knock at anybody. It's just kind of what we do in-house. Um, so that that's, you know, a testament to Glenn and his coaching, um, his coaching career and, I think Stu's got that foundation to build on and hopefully we get some returners to come back. Some guys who've been around a couple of years to guide the younger guys. And, uh, you know, I think it'd be pretty naive and, and ignorant to say that there's not going to be some learning curves for everybody. Mm-hmm. Stu's stepping into a, a new role and I think he's really, really well equipped for it. It's just new, right? Ty's going from coaching to playing or playing to coaching, right? It's new. So, um, I think we're going to have to lean on each other a bit. You know, he might, Ty and Stu might lean on like the older guys. We might lean on them a bit just to kind of get through it, but it's not going to be bad. It's just going to be different. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I can't anticipate it being really different, but you know, Stu's his own person. He's got his own philosophies on things and, and Ty as well. So I'm just excited to be with them as they kind of take over and, transition into a new role for them. It's exciting for me as a player because, you know, I get to help them and they get to help me. So. Yeah, that's awesome. 
So the next thing I wanted to kind of transition to is we want to remember that our fan base is constantly growing and not everyone understands hockey, especially I think about everybody in Alabama. Um, you know, we don't really play hockey a lot. We, we don't have hockey in our high schools. Um, the University of Alabama has a hockey team and I know Auburn does too, but they don't even have a hockey rink, you know, on campus in Tuscaloosa. They're, they're in Pelham playing, um, for their games. And so we try to have the players, when they come on, explain rules to us. And so I wanted, or positions, and so this week I wanted you to kind of explain to the listeners, especially new ones that may not understand the game, you are a defenseman. That is what your um, position is. So explain what what is that? Um, how do you train for that? When you decided that you wanted to start playing ice hockey, is that what you chose? Is that what a coach stuck you in? You know, I think about we. We all send our kids out to play peewee football, and this is what you get stuck with. Even You know what I'm saying? So tell us about that. Tell us about what it means to play that position um, and and help us understand it. Yeah, so for me, um, I wanted to be a goalie when I was younger. So I remember my mom bought me, like, goalie pads from the sports store, and then I went out to, like, the rec hockey for, like, the little guys when you're five, and um, the manager of the team – her son was the goalie. So they were like, why don't you play D? It's the next best thing. So I was a D that year. I was number one because I wanted to be a goalie. So I picked number one. <laughs> so <laughs> and that's and that's where it started. Uh, never played goalie after that. Stuck with D for the last you know 21 years. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the game's changed a lot for the position or the, the game and the position have changed a lot. Like, when I was growing up, a lot of the, the defenseman's jobs, essentially, right? Don't let the other team score. Um, you're not going to be producing a lot of offense. It's kind of your job to, to not let the other team score, right? So you're going to be in the defensive zone. That's kind of your bread and butter. Um, offensive zone is what it is. If you can contribute, sweet. But but as I got older, probably by like 2010 to 2015, the position changed pretty drastically where – now there's a lot of defensemen that are like fourth forwards, right? Offensively, they join the rush. They're always in the offensive zone. They're creating offense. Me, I'm a little archaic in the sense that personally, I, um, I've always kind of been a stay at home defenseman. So I take a lot of pride in, in playing defense really well. And if I can contribute offensively with goals or assist, it's awesome. But my main focus is like penalty kill, not letting the other team score, blocking shots and playing physical and just letting whoever the top line on the other team is that night know that like trying to make their night a living hell, right? You make it hard for them to score. So um, that's what I do. But there's guys, you know, like if oh, for the fans that have watched Nolan Kaiser play, he, he did it both, right? He could score and he was really good defensively. Um, and there's guys that are really good offensively that aren't that good defensively, but they're defensive. So the game, the positions really kind of evolved, but the main point is if you're a defenseman, you know, you roll out in pairs. So each team usually dresses six a night. So you have three pairs, you play, um, and your jobs, you know, for all intents and purposes, not to let the other team score. Now, the more fans watch and the more people watch, you'll, find out really quick who's offensively inclined on defense, who's maybe more defensive and who's good both ways. So it's, it's kind of just player preference. But for me, like I really focus in on playing physical, playing tough, you know, blocking shots, not letting the other team score, shutting down the top lines, trying to do that. And I've made a career out of it so far. So. 
and and skating backwards too. You got to really yes, be able yes. to do that. That was a, somebody um, had asked, wanted me to ask about how hard is it to really learn how to be really good at skating backwards and all of that. Yeah, it's hockey's one of those sports where it's crazy because it's like like if you're six or seven and you decide like I'm going to play hockey, it's not too late, but by like twelve to really like it's it's pretty late. Like hockey's one of those sports that like when motor skills are developing in kids, it's the time to get them in because I've seen like my friends are in their twenties a couple of years ago, trying to learn how to skate and they've done it like 15, 20 times and they still, they still can't really do it. Right. So for like, when you start young, I started at two, like it's second nature. Right. But Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I would say for me, like from like three or four to like 10 to 11 is when I like seven years of really working on skating and backward skating, I, I finally became comfortable doing it. So you don't realize the amount of work that goes into it when you're a kid, but looking back, you're like, that's seven years, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know many people that really do seven years worth of stuff for something like skating backwards. So. We'll be back with more of the Reek and Havoc podcast. This is a true, sad story for ADT, the leader in home security systems. My favorite dog, Oliver, was stolen from our garage recently. If I had a camera system installed in my home from ADT, I would have known exactly what car possibly pulled up in my driveway and stole my little friend. If I had a security system from ADT, my dog would still be here. I called ADT this weekend, and they're coming out in a few days to install a camera and a new security system. Unfortunately, it's a little too late for me. Listen, protect everyone you love in your family. Call ADT now. Have them come out and give you a quote to install a full security system in your home. Don't let it be too late for you. Call right now. Paid for by the Home Security Hotline. 800-200-6543. 800-200-6543. That's 800-200-6543. Hey, this is Rob Darren, and you're listening to the Reeking Havoc Podcast. Well, we're going to transition a little bit away from hockey and talk about a couple of other things um, that are something that I think is really cool and just really awesome about you. And while you have a growing and really impressive hockey career, you've also got this really impressive educational background. And so um, I really wanted to, to dive into that with you Um because I understand the level of commitment that comes from the education stuff. I have an undergraduate degree, two masters working on a PhD. So I get the whole process that you have put in and the time you've put in. So um, it seems like having that, this education is a, is very important to you um, in general, especially with you saying that, you know, you were, you could have easily told UAH, I don't want to do this. I'm playing Havoc now. You could have easily dropped out, but you didn't. So tell us a little bit about why this education aspect has been very important to you. Yeah, I mean, I um, so I went into school, uh, UMass Lowell, studying business. In my first semester, I realized it just wasn't for me. Um, I'm not a very like uh, like black and white kind of objective guy. I'm, I'm very subjective, open to interpretation. Um, and then I took a philosophy and film class. It's kind of a blow off. Like, Oh, I fell in love with philosophy as a, as a discipline. Um, and then 
you know, took Italian class, fell in love with learning the language about the culture. Um, obviously, like my my family's comes from over there, so it's it's cool to learn that. And then political science and as a minor, just kind of happened. Took enough classes, and I enjoyed it yeah. too. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's always been about kind of like the pursuit of knowledge is fun for me. Like I I enjoy learning anything really. Um, as much as I do like learning something new in hockey, it's just trying to be the best version of myself. And then like, I'm a big believer in go to school and and find what you like and really hone in on that. So I, I stuck with philosophy. I can't say mom was too happy. I made the switch from business to philosophy, but um, yeah, I just, I enjoyed it too much to to not pursue it as a, as an undergrad. And then um, my master's um, I figured UAH didn't have philosophy, so I figured English and lit theory would be about as close as to philosophy as you can. So I went into an English MA with only creative writing class or college writing classes. Um, oh, lovely! But that was was there a was there a shocker at that moment when you got like an assignment or something? Uh, honestly, it took me like a, by the first midterm of my first semester to realize like, okay, like this is what's going on. Like, it's not like this, it's like this. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I made that transition well. And and I fell in love with English too, because, you know, I, I, I wasn't a big reader. Like everyone's talking about all the novels they read in class. And I'm like, I've read like five books in the last five years. Crap. Um, <laughs> but you know, for me, I, I, it's just all about learning. Right. So when you actually learn to apply things and, theories and ideas to, to novels and other mm-hmm. things and, and writing and like writing poems and short stories and fun stuff. It's just fun. So I really studied things that I've enjoyed and uh, credit to UAH and, and the professors there for my last year, giving me a lot of freedom to pursue Italian American literature, something I was interested in. It's not very, it's not a rigid program, right? It's very flexible. So I got to study that and you know, when, when you're passionate about something like that, it's, it's a lot easier to invest a lot of time and effort into it than kind of writing, a, you know, a book report or something like that. So, Hey, they will tell you when you get to the dissertation process <laughs> of your PhD, work on what you're interested in. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, that whole concept stays very well true. And I laugh too. You saying that you, you got a poli sci minor because you had enough credits. I was the same way. I had enough to get a creative writing minor and I thought, you know, I need one more. And funny thing, I am one class away from a minor in Italian. Um, the class was offered in Italy and it was just not something that I could go, go take. Yeah. So I understand like being on the edge of something like, Oh, sure. Let's just add that to the pile of everything. Yeah, um, it looks good, right? <laughs> no, just let's just keep adding it. What's, what's the, what's the deal with it? But um, so. I'm interested too with your ability to like balance all of this because I know for a fact for myself, um, there have been countless times in the last couple of years when we are in the Von Braun watching a Havoc hockey game. Okay. We're in the middle of like y'all were fighting on the rink and I am literally watching you guys do your thing. And I'm also studying for my PhD work. So like, it's not uncommon for me to like bring that stuff into the Von Braun and like study and watch hockey. I understand how I've had to balance this, but I'm not out there playing. I'm not out there having to work out, condition, do all those things that you guys. So how did you balance? And I know what goes into getting a master's degree. There's a lot of it's not like undergrad. You've got to be a little bit more responsible, a little bit more catch up on things. So how did you balance playing hockey at at kind of a professional level now 
um, with what was expected and then also doing this coursework? Yeah, I think it kind of circles back to that kind of just discipline that like my mom really instilled in me as a young, young guy. Um, just because, I mean, the nice thing about pro hockey is, you know, you're at the rink for three, four hours a day and then the day's yours. So, well, a lot of guys will go golfing or, you know, watching movies and hang out. And I had to do a lot of homework, um, which is fine. I always found, I found a good balance of staying on top of things all the time. Um, I get pretty anxious when I know I have to do something and I know I'm not going to have enough time to do it. So I always try and stay prepared that way. Um, but yeah, I was honestly at a, at a certain point though, I started going to gold sprint, uh, the coffee shop in Huntsville. Awesome place. Check it out. Um, not, a, not an ad, just one of my favorite places. Um, <laughs> I, I would just go there cause I would get away cause you live with roommates and you know, if they're watching a movie and you're, you're writing a paper, you're like, oh, I kind of want to watch the movie, you know, you cannot do it with someone yeah. like that. Yeah. You just absolutely have to get away. I get that. I totally. So get I would, it. I probably spent about as much time at gold sprint in the last year and a half than I have at the BBC. So, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's just doing it right. I always say like, you know, the hardest part is just doing it right. Getting yourself to do it. And then it's after that, it's, it's not too hard. So, but again, like I missed out on, I think I've golfed four times in my two years in Huntsville because I'm doing school. You know, I've missed out on like movies at the theaters and stuff, but no one holds it against me. You know, they, teammates and stuff they get it they're they're awesome about it and you know i just knew that it was it's important to get done and important to do do it well you know my mom always said also mm-hmm. don't do anything half-assed so <laughs> if you're gonna do it do it so yeah. yeah a lot of a lot of time balancing and figuring things out and uh yeah funny little stories like one time i was doing an assignment and couldn't figure out Microsoft Excel. I'm not a Microsoft Excel person. Like it's just not my, not my jam. So all the guys are out Sunday. So they're at, they're at the bar having a couple of drinks, watching football, whatever. And I'm like, God. And, and so Kilcheski, Alex Kilcheski had recently just got his masters and like counterterrorism kid's brilliant. So I'm like, I'm like killer. What are you doing? He's like, Oh, I'm like having a couple of drinks. We're all watching football. I'm like, do you know Excel? He's like, yeah, I know Excel at the back of my hand. I'm like, all right. So me and my fiance, we get in the car and we drive to the bar and have my laptop out and the guys are watching football, screaming at the TV and, and killers helping me with my Excel in the middle of the bar. So I know what you mean when you got, you're studying at the, at the VBC. Cause it's like, well, I guess I'm here now. So I'm having like a, a drink and then a beer and I'm doing my yep. homework with killers. So, yep. Yep. um, so like that, you know, guys are great. So they, they help out when they can. A lot of them look at it and go, I, I don't know what the, the heck you're talking about with this stuff. So. <laughs> hey, I just, I have just learned in the process. I just carry it with me consistently and it's yeah. I'm working on it all the time. It's, it's what exactly. life is. Um, and so let's talk a little bit too about your, and when you get a master's degree, you can kind of go a thesis route, a couple of different things. And for a, for what people may not realize is that's not just like taking an exam. That's like a big project that you have to yeah. undertake. A lot of stuff that goes into it. You have to defend those things. You have to talk about it. Um, Tell us about your, I'm interested to know about your project. No, other people may not be, but I'm interested to know because you have to put a lot of time into it to, to craft it, to get that degree. It's not like you just 
take a test and you're done. Um, yeah. So tell about what you did for your kind of culminating thing um, with your master's degree, because it's really impressive in general. Uh, yeah. So the, um, so I didn't do the thesis option only because the hockey, I wouldn't yeah, have enough time to, to set up. I do not like, blame you one bit on that. So I went the capstone route. So the capstone route is just a semester of studying and writing. But I was very fortunate because it acted like a, th- a thesis in the sense that I took, I did an independent study with one of my professors, Dr. Conway. Shout out, Dr. Conway. We did Italian American literature, something new to him, new to me. Read like eight or nine novels. We'd meet at the coffee shop, talk about them. Um, so I wrote this. I had this idea for this big paper. And he was like, you know, read the first draft. He's like, you're, you have three weeks and you're trying to write 70 pages. Like, why don't we trim it down to like 25? He goes, and then write the second half for your capstone. I was like, Perfect. So essentially what I did was I looked at popular culture, um, Italian American identity. So like popular culture, like movies, literature, um, even, you know, just, everything you see in the, in the public eye. And I looked at Italian American identity and I tried to trace almost like a genealogy of the evolution of Italian American identity as the immigrant um, from the great migration wave of the 1880s to like the mm-hmm. 1930s. Mm-hmm. As those immigrants die, what does Italian American identity become? Because if you That's look awesome. at exclusively popular culture, you have the mafia mm-hmm. trope, you have a lot of these tropes Um you know, if you, if you, but they're influential, but they're not accurate. Right. Right. Yeah. So I kind of argue that there's kind of like a cultural mimesis of Italian Americanisms where I might be the third generation, fourth generation Italian American, you have no access to the immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- w- what is my, what does my Italian American look like? Well, I argue that for me and people my age or a bit older, it's kind of the Sopranos, right? <laughs> right. You watch the Sopranos yeah. and you're like, you identify right away yeah. and you're like, Oh my goodness. Like this is, you know, I, I identify it's on the big screen. It's popular. It's cool again. Right. Mm-hmm. But then I looked at, you know, for kids growing up, there's a lot of these Italian American TikTok stars. So those, those people become influential because the Sopranos become what I argue is a second generation. Mm-hmm. It, the Godfather, like I can watch the Godfather and enjoy it, but I can't identify. But right. if your parents are from Italy, my dad, <laughs> yeah, my dad is not that he there. He, he would be considered like a second or third generation, but his immediate like grandparents, like big mom and big daddy were yeah. from that era and that. And so he can watch those and be like, yeah, that's how things used to be. And I don't understand any of that because I'm not, that's not what my Italian yeah. experience is. Yeah. So I just think it's, it's interesting to map out the genealogy of what it means to be Italian American. And, and not that there's an objective meaning, but kind of pointing out the influences. And you look at these TikTok stars now and, and they kind of use the, um, you know, the grandiose Italian caricature mm-hmm. and from incorporate things from the Sopranos, right? These things all operate together, right? They can't elude the history of it. So in a nutshell, that's what I wrote on. Um, and it was really, really enjoyable for me. And um, yeah, I just, I was really interested in it. And I don't think I gave myself enough time to work it out. I feel like that might be um, a potential for a book one day, but it's a lot of research, right? So Yes, but hey, there's always room for that next project. Don't ever forget yeah. that. 
And um, yeah. And so what's interesting, Alabama has a really interesting Italian heritage, especially in the Birmingham Inslee area. Um, So don't discredit um, anything that you might one day, if you ever write a book, I say, go for it and do it one day in your life. Um, You never know what you'll find. So that also brings me to ask this question too. you. You have Italian background. Obviously, this has this this interest in Italian culture and the language must stem from. You, you Italian to some extent. So talk about that. Did you, you was it fluent in your life? Did, did any of your parents speak that grandparents? I mean, how did this, how does this whole Italian aspect connect with this too? Yeah. So what really got me interested was, um, so my dad's family, um, my dad's, I guess, technically a first generation American. So I never got to meet his parents. Uh, his dad died when he was like seven or eight or maybe even younger, I think four. And then his mom, my grandmother, passed away the year before I was born, right? Mm-hmm. So I grew up without knowing it, right, in a very Italian-esque kind of way, like, you know, Italian masses, San Francesco's church, right, knowing everybody, everyone's your uncle, all the all the good stuff, the familial mm-hmm. aspects, the really nice just kind of. Then we're all loud. We're all loud. Yes, yes, Did you ever go yes, to a family yes, event where it wasn't yes. loud? We're all loud. <laughs> yes. So it's. That was awesome, but I, I, you know, I always heard stories and and kind of just felt like there was some kind of lack, lackingness to the you know ability to connect. Like, and it's it's very subjective in my personal experience, but it's kind of what got me thinking about you know, I understand like the ethnic identity construction, but I don't have anyone to teach me. I don't have a no, no, or no, no to be like, Hey, this, you know, mm-hmm. and my dad, um, you know, he grew up in the eighties as a first generation American in an American Italian household. Right. Like back then it, it's not cool to be fluent in Italian. You don't want to learn Italian. You want to be American. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially in those times, seventies and eighties. Right. Um, that was a big problem for a lot of immigrant families. And it, it happens today with every immigrant generation. Right. The Americanization, the assimilation. So he he really didn't retain any, you know, culturally, but lang- linguistically, language and stuff. You know, couple words in dialect. And mm-hmm. so I went to school. I really wanted to make it a point to really try and learn the language the best I could in my four years or three years, and and learn about the culture and kind of apply it to maybe some of the things that you know I didn't get to experience and. And kind of just see what that did. And it was, it was awesome. Like I just went to Italy and I used to be pretty close to fluent during school. Um, but being in Huntsville, there's not many people that are fluent in Italian. So I didn't really get to speak with anybody too much. Um, and that's, it is what it is. So when I went to Italy, I was able to speak uh, a little bit and, and just kind of enjoy it and maybe not be as touristy because obviously you're still a tourist, yeah. but just kind of yeah. connect on a different level. And it worked. I got a free souffle, free drinks a couple of times. So there you go. If yeah. you ever go to Italy, Duolingo the crap out of it and try and formulate a couple of sentences and the wait staff will usually take care of you. So, you know, I took Italian when I was in college. I took some some of it and I can read Italian better than I can speak the language. Yeah, me too. Like, I actually have an Italian American newspaper. I was reading today in Italian. I'm like, I get like 95% of this, yeah. right? We can read it. But when I have to sit there and have a conversation and the other thing too is the different regions within Italy has different dialect, different oh, yeah. 
everything is so different. If you're down in Sicily, it's a whole different way of saying stuff than if you're in a different part. So um, for me, that even when I would, I've, I've taken French too, and even being in France, it was still difficult. I could still read French better than I could communicate. And I'm, I don't know if that's something that we deal with as we're trying to learn a language later. Oh, in yeah. And also, it's, a, it's also like you get there and you don't think about how fast we speak. And then you get over there and someone says something to you and you're like, Mm-hmm. what because it's so fast and dialect and you mm-hmm. know it's crazy because you don't you know you're, if you're stuck in your american bubble you know like my or my fiance is from shreveport louisiana so i always give her crap when she says like oil instead of oil or cement right right, right. She makes she makes fun of me how i say bagel like i have a long a and and so when you think about it in english you're like oh but then it's the same thing over there so when, mm-hmm. when you're learning like a standard language and then you go apply it it could be a crapshoot yeah you, it's, it's a definitely an experience you also mentioned to me that you recently had a poem published in the voices of italian americana is that right yep. Yeah. So tell us about uh, publishing a poem. Was it based off some of your um, stuff you did in school or is this just a hobby thing that you decided to do? Yeah. So I took a poetry writing class as part of my uh, master's and kind of just fell into my schedule. I wasn't really super keen on poetry, but I was like, why not? You know, I'm open minded. Why try it? Yeah, so, I'm not. I, I get poetry. I understand what you mean by that. So, yeah. So I took the class and you just essentially wrote. A bunch of poems and I wrote this poem um, called Nona's Kitchen and it was essentially about kind of the dilemma I described of not being able to connect with that side of uh, you know like the lost heritage the lost culture and and all that and I wrote it in an Italian sonnet to be quite fitting right <laughs> um, and then uh, I wrote it for class and that was my first semester so that would have been fall of 2021 and then sat on it and then during the summer last year i was visiting uh, my fiance at her apartment in baton rouge and uh had a bunch of free time so i pulled up my laptop and i looked it over and revised it for about 10 minutes and revised it again one more time and then i just applied to like six different publishers because i was like this is my best poem i think i've written like i i'm gonna try and get this published i didn't expect it to you know, so I, I went to like smaller journals and then I was like, well, this is Italian American poem, so may as well try. And um, I got an email like, I think it was March. I'm just leaving the coffee shop and it's like, your poems been published. And I like forgot. I'm like, what poem? <laughs> and I look and, you know, and um, yeah. So I got published in Voices of Italian Americana, which is like a smaller academic journal and Italian American stuff. And, uh, you know, get a free electronic copy of the journal as payment. So I'll take it. Yeah. It's yeah. not a very lucrative profession, but but it's hard to get published. That's what yeah. a lot of people don't realize, especially in an academic setting. It takes a while to get this. So you sending it out to a multiple people does not, you know, that's part of the process. Um, but that's really, really cool. Uh, can we read it somewhere or do we have to have access to the journal? Is that kind of how that goes? Um, I, I could maybe, I don't know how it works actually, because they might have the rights to the poem. Yeah, they might. Well, we all know it's there and we're proud of you for doing that and taking a chance on it. And so I'll leave, I'll leave this to the last question about, I guess, your education. What What are you going to do with all of this? Like at the end of the day, what is your plan now that you have this under your belt? Yeah. So, I'm, you know, I'm in a dilemma a little bit because uh, I love playing hockey um, and 
you know, uh, the havoc is unbelievable and it's minor pro. So none of us are getting rich doing it, but we love it. And it's awesome. And I wouldn't trade it for the world, but you know, there'll, there'll be appointment hockey's done. I, I really think that for me, I'm not a very big, um, like corporate person or business, you know, I, I'm not, that's really not my, my jam. I love being in hockey and I love learning. So, you know, if I decide to stay in hockey um, after I'm playing, maybe it'd be coaching or, or whatever. But if, if I get an opportunity, I really would be interested in PhD and in, in English, Italian American focus, trying to make that kind of the, the bread and butter. But um, And then you would and, end up teaching. Then you'd be a teacher. Yeah. That would be the end goal. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would be a good college professor. Um, I personally – like my fiance is trying to get an elementary education. She's a saint for me. I don't even think I could do high school. Cause it's like, it's just, I don't think I could handle it. I, there's, yeah. there's teachers I've had had patience of steel and I <laughs> respect them so much, but I don't think I could do it. Um, so I think the university setting teaching would probably be my, my best bet, but yeah, PhD and, and try and get in, you know, teaching English or, or, coaching, but I, I like helping people and teaching. So, well, if you ever decide to go your PhD route, when you're in the middle of it, let me know. We will have, we will share war stories and we'll talk yes. about the process yeah. and yeah. we will cry our tears over the, <laughs> some of it. So I totally, totally will tell you that. Um, so then okay, we're going to transition a little bit. You told me also that you recently got engaged. And so I thought I would ask you about that. I am a sucker for a good engagement story. And so I want to know all about it since you brought it up. Tell us how this all happened. Um, how did you know this? she was the one? All these things now since you are newly off the, really off the market, so to speak. Uh, yeah. So I've been with Grace for five and a half years. I met her playing junior hockey in Shreveport, Louisiana. And then uh, we did long distance for about four years. Um, and then this past year, she moved in with me in Huntsville and it was great. So, you know, I bought the ring last summer and I sat on it for a while. And then, you know, it, it really just coincidentally happened that, you know, we family was able to get everything together to go to Italy and, um, you know, she's so you proposed a, she, in Italy. Yeah. So, Oh, that's um, even better. Yeah. So she's, um, she's a good Catholic. Um, not I'm okay. I'm an okay Catholic. She likes to frequent more than me, but she makes me a better person because I go to church with her and stuff when, when I have time to. So, um, so it was really special. We were uh, at the Vatican and I, uh, you know, that's a pretty sentimental place for anybody, but especially her held a lot of weight. And uh, so at the steps of St. Peter's Basilica, I popped the question and, you know, it was awesome. So it was was very storybook. You know, that's something that she really wanted to be proposed to there. I kind of caught the hint and then, think she saw it coming i try to keep it a surprise but um yeah right at vatican city uh on the steps of saint peter's so nice so when um when are you guys gonna get married when's the wedding when are we all coming to (laughs) to celebrate all of this yeah right now we're looking at a two-year engagement just because you know um just save up and, and kind of, we're not in a hurry to do it. Listen, um, don't have a wedding. Just tell them you want a nice honeymoon and ha- and celebrate and get on a plane and go. <laughs> well, see, that's the issue, right? So the Catholic and her wants the 
the big wedding with the church. And I do too, but you know, those things are expensive, but um, yeah, we're looking at two-year engagement and um, you know, her family's in Shreveport. My friends and family are kind of all over. So uh-huh. we're thinking about New Orleans, you know, yeah. right in the easy to fly to quick drive for mm-hmm. them. Fun city. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Super congratulations on that. You totally knocked the engagement out of the park with that one. Yeah, I, I am curious, how do you sit on a ring for almost a year and not, she didn't find it, you hit it, you didn't lose it? I think about that. No, too. so I, I kept it, right? When I moved back to Huntsville, I kept it at home with my mom in Detroit. Perfect. That's even better. So then, so then when we were leaving for Italy, I put it in my carry-on bag, thank God, because I lost my check bag. They still, I don't know where my check bag is. It's, I think it's in Frankfurt right now. I'm trying to get that, but if it was in there, I'd be in a lot of trouble. So <laughs> I carry, I carried it on. I was going to put it in there. My mom's like, you have the ring with you? I'm like, well, it's in the check bag. She, you should hold on to it. So I was like, okay. Mom was really That's, smart. Yeah. With that one. Oh that yeah. Cause that would have been disastrous for everybody. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, in Alabama, we have um, unclaimed baggage. It's oh not, yeah. I've been there where a lot. I, I love it. Yeah, so I live up in that area in Scottsboro, and um, so you never know if it your bag may end up in the land That's of lost like, luggage, and yeah. we may find the stuff out of it one day. Grace was joking, she's because I bought some stuff for the trip at Unclean Baggage. She's like, "You're gonna have to go back to Unclean Baggage and buy the stuff you just bought." I'm like, "I know, this is ridiculous." <laughs> that is too funny. Um, okay, well, we're gonna transition now to some fan questions. Um, okay. We kind of wrap this up. We always allow fans to send in, call in, share some of their questions for each player that we bring on. And so we had a fan that wanted to know, what are your hobbies outside of hockey? When you're not playing hockey, you're obviously not golfing yet. You're not doing <laughs> some of this stuff, but what, what are you, what do you enjoy doing? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a big, um, I like to cook. So um, if I have time, you know, if homework's light or whatever, I like to cook, uh, whatever sometimes just experiment make new dishes um you know my my go-to is usually like baked ziti or i'd make make a pretty good meatball so i know right shocker but i like to cook um i like i like movies and, and reading too i like i like a lot of that stuff um yeah i'm pretty pretty easy going though i don't really have anything like other than like hockey on the forefront i mean school took up a big chunk of time so now you have I guess all this time yeah so i guess i'd say just just reading and and kind of um like learning that way and, and watching like i like documentaries and like history stuff too so that yeah. kind of stuff do you have any pre-game rituals any superstitions like you wear the same socks or you do a certain warm-up routine you know somebody wants to know what are your pre-game rituals like that kind of thing uh pre-game yeah i mean i I always do the same thing um i always tape my stick on the bench and then i go um stretch and roll out and then we have a team meeting and then i play soccer like two touch soccer with everybody and i do a dynamic warm-up and then i kind of chill for like 15 minutes kind of get my mind right and then with about 12 minutes before warm-ups i start putting on my gear so i just get right into it so i've learned that for me to have a good routine like that. Sometimes you're not able to with time and travel, but mm-hmm. having that routine and then just getting right into warm-ups and into the game instead of overthinking and stuff is, is that works for me. So hey, another fan wanted to know, um, can you recall a memorable hockey fight that you were a part of? 
uh, when you were fighting because yeah. you don't fight yeah. on, the, on the you don't do any of that right no never no, no never no, never no, no. um i actually wasn't even in huntsville but <laughs> i went in junior um in shreveport where it ended up being like a five on five brawl and the goalies were going at it and it was pretty crazy but uh for huntsville i think my favorite fight in huntsville is probably um this past year against Pensacola, I mean, we ended up not winning, but we were kind of flat and um, Malik Johnson and Pensacola, I asked him to fight. He said, yeah, I think I got the better of him in my opinion. And uh, I usually don't fire the bench up, but I tried to get the guys going and they responded pretty well. I think we lost in like overtime or something, but we came back from like a three goal lead. So I was like, Hey, like it works. Right. So yeah. it, it was good. When you're in the middle of a fight out there, I mean, what are you thinking about? Are you just trying to figure out not to fall? What's going on? What's going on through your head in that process? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can you can ask anybody who's done it. Like, you're always gonna be a little anxious, right? You're literally engaging in hand to hand combat on ice skates. But um, <laughs> for me, it's it's just trying to stay calm, right? Like, I feel like when I get really really mad, it's it's actually a little more dangerous because I might not be really thinking about what's going on or what they're doing. So be calm and. Like you're going to, you're going to get punched in the face in a fight. So if you don't like getting punched in the face or you can't hate, take it, like probably shouldn't be fighting. So, well, if um, it, if it matters, I've saved the the questions about fighting and um, penalties for that. Trying to figure out who, which Havoc player is the most prone to fight to ask those questions. Well, it's probably me. I would say. You think so? So I would say, I would say, I think um, not to be like arrogant, but uh, or not arrogant, but just, I think I had like, well, I, I love the team this year. And I think last year too, uh, it's not that I love it. It's just, I'm a big guy. I'm physical guys want to get mad. And then you next thing you know, it's like, okay, if no one else is going to do it, I'll do it. Yeah. I don't really care. Okay, so yeah. yeah Injuries. I mean, you gotten injured really bad from a fight. Um, knock on wood. Um, my first ever one in junior, I fought a guy who was way older, way more experienced and he made my nose blow up. So other than that, I've been pretty okay. But, I mean, you get hit in the face, you get hit hard, you know, as long as you don't get knocked out, that's kind of – you don't yeah, want to be embarrassed, right? Guys, right. you have an ego, right? You don't want to be embarrassed in front of anybody. So, Especially now, if you if you are the one doing the majority of the fighting, you definitely have to, to carry that weight. So, yeah, I get yeah, that. Yeah, it could be, it could be uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty heavy on the anxiety front sometimes, but – no one, no one in our team and organization is there to fight, right? We're all there to play hockey. It's just kind of a byproduct of it. The fighting's just a part of it. I mean, my little yeah. one will sit up there and he's like, "Oh, they're gonna fight. They're gonna fight." The refs will break it up, and he's so disappointed. And I'm like, "I don't know if we'll get a fight tonight, buddy." Depends <laughs> on who we're that's playing. The thing, the people like that, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is a. And it's funny that we say that because when I will tell people, I really like my family. We love hockey. We like our Alabama football. Don't get us wrong down here, yeah, but we really yeah. like watching hockey. And they'll say, oh, we must just go for the fighting. That's the first thing people talk yeah. about is, oh, you fight in hockey. You can't fight in other sports. And, I, and I'm like, I mean, that's a part of it, but you're not guaranteed. And, you know, except in my opinion, if we play Birmingham, there's always going to be a fight. I always anticipate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We don't like um, them very much and for good reason. So. <laughs> Um, I send two more questions before we wrap this up. The last one was, what do you say to young kids watching you guys play who hope to be in your position one day? Yeah, I just think for for younger kids, um, 
at any age, really, I mean, it just starts with having like a clear idea or I guess a goal of, of what you want to get out of the sport. Right. So, um, it's always, it's never going to be a direct path for anybody to anywhere, but if you're a younger guy or a younger girl, just out there trying to make it in, in hockey, it's going to take a lot of de- dedication, discipline. Um, you're going to have to miss out on a lot of things, um, travel a bunch, you know, and it's, it's, it can be stressful, um, for the, for the kids and the parents, right. Financially, it can be a lot. And, but at the end of the day, if you are committed to trying to make it and you really can look in the mirror every day saying, you know, as you get older that I'm, I'm really doing everything I can to, to be the best version of myself. Um, you know, if you, you should be able to live with that, whatever the, you know, what's the old cliche shoot for the moon land on the stars, right. You want to play yeah. in the NHL and everyone does, but you know, as you get older, it gets harder and there's politics and everything. It's just like life. Right. So you just mm-hmm. got to keep going, uh, control your attitude, have a good attitude and yeah. um, be grateful for it because, you know, there's a time where you can't play anymore. So it just comes quicker for some people and some people try and hold on to it for a long time, but it's just the reality of it. So, yeah. And then lastly, um, what should we be listening to? What artists are you listening to music wise? What do you think we should be listening to right now? And what TV show or movie do you think we need to go binge and watch? Um, so movies, uh, I haven't seen either of these, but I'm, they're on my list. Um, I'm a big comedy fan too. I like comedy. So there's a movie called the machine by this comic Bert Kreischer. It's amazing. I've seen okay. it. Totally okay. So it. me and me and Grace want to go see that. And then I also like Sebastian Maniscalco who's a comic and he's got one, I think it's with De Niro called about my father. So those are on the uh, queue for me. Um, TV, honestly, Grace gets mad at me because I love watching the Sopranos. I've seen it like four times and I'll rewatch episodes and she gets so upset because she's just over it. <laughs> right. So I love the Sopranos. If you haven't seen the Sopranos, download HBO max, check it out. If you have time, it's hard to binge because it's like a hundred hours, but it's good. Uh, and then artist, I'm all over the place. I, me and my roommates, uh, Robbie Fisher, Sam Hunter, and Jamie Bissell, we got on a really big Toby Keith kick at the end of the year. And uh, my southern fiance hates country music, so she does not like when I'm blaring courtesy of the red, white, and blue taking a shower. But I've been listening to Toby Keith, so if you. Uh, you're ever bored or just need to pick me up turn on some toby keith because it's just good go. fun music that's right wonderful. so that's wonderful i love it I and mean, you're gonna love the machine go we're literally yeah. just pulling out all kinds of commercials in the middle of this discussion yeah, we are. but you're going you'll like it it's funny it's really funny um yeah you may you may uh you may get chuckled a couple of times in the middle of it. <laughs> um, well, it has been an absolute joy to just really sit down and chat with you, not only about hockey, but about your life, um, all of these things. We always enjoy watching you play. You really put a lot of heart into the game. Um, you're definitely one of the fan favorites, and so we just really appreciate it. And the Havoc family, we're really proud of your accomplishments. You know, I saw um, some people talking about, I think Billy Welker had shared a picture of he came to your um graduation and so you know we were i was looking at the comments you know we're proud of that that's a big accomplishment so um do not take that like you know lightly by any means at all um but yeah we're so happy that you you came on today to talk with us i appreciate you having me on here and you know it's um i love being in huntsville uh the fans the the people the city it's just a place you know that uh i really 
grown attached to and um, thankful for everybody, uh, yourself and in the podcast and then all the fans and all the people that just come out and support us and, and let us to continue to do uh, what we do and what we love to do. So it's always fun to share that with, with everybody. So. Well, thank you again for your time and a big thank you to all the fans who are out there listening to our podcast. The, um, you know, new ones that are coming on board, learning about hockey, becoming a part of the Havoc family. You know, we are so happy that you're listening and we hope you enjoyed today's In the Slot Chat with Dominic Procopio here on the Recon Havoc podcast. Again, my name is Laura Pitts and I am really thankful to be part of the adventure with all of you Havoc and SBHL hockey fans. But at the heart of it, we want to remind everyone that the fans are what keep this going. So as we move forward and we have new players come on, new um, staff members, coaches, everyone that comes to talk about their part of the Havoc story, make sure you send us those questions. Um, let us know what you want us to ask everybody. You can send those to Havoc at Outlook.com. That is R-E-E-K-I-N-H-A-V-O-C at Outlook.com. And if you happen to be out there listening and you're a former hockey player um, for the Havoc or a Channel Cats player, you know, you've been a part of the hockey history in Huntsville, so to speak, um, send us an email. Let us know that you would like to come on. We're trying to track down some former players also that might like to share their experiences and their stories. Okay, so so definitely do that. But until the next time, stay sharp in the slot and keep reeking of Huntsville Havoc hockey. Do you have an idea for the Recon Havoc podcast? Email us at ReconHavoc at Outlook.com. Send a Facebook message to the Recon Havoc page or leave us a voicemail at 256-434-RKKN. That's 256-434-7556. The Recon Havoc podcast. Every 40 seconds, a child goes missing somewhere in the U.S. You can help in the effort to find missing kids simply by donating your car or boat to Find the Children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to returning missing children to their families. Find the Children works closely with national and community agencies and organizations and helps distribute flyers and posters that are directly responsible for recovering missing kids. Your car or boat donation helps protect and recover children in every state and community by sponsoring child safety and recovery programs. For fast, free pickup, call anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Running or not, your car, truck, van, RV, or boat will be towed away free of charge. Fast, free pickup, plus it's tax deductible. Everyone wins when you donate your car or boat to find the children. Call right now, 800-466-8813, 800-466-8813, that's 800-466-8813. The Havoc announced dates for their home schedule for next year's regular season starting October 27th and going until April 5th. The 28 home games of the 20th season include 25 weekend games, one on Tuesday and two on Thursday. All games will start at 7 p.m. with the exception of the one Sunday game, which will begin at 5. few reminders here. Don't forget about the annual Youth Skills Camp coming up June 19th through 22nd. Kids ages 8 to 14 can learn from coaches Stuart Steffen and Tyler Piacentini. For more information, go online to HuntsvilleHavoc.com forward slash youth hyphen camp, or you can go to the Huntsville Havoc Facebook page. The 2023 Showcase Camp will be July 28th through 30th at the Huntsville I Sports Center. Cost is $300. The sign-up link is online at HuntsvilleHavoc.com. Just click on the tab in the main menu. And updated office hours for the summer are Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. through August 4th. 
Then beginning August 7th, that goes to weekdays from 10 till 6 until September 1st. Then from September 5th through the end of the season, it will be from 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. Become a member of Chaos Kids Club today. Download the Kids Club app for your iOS or Android device or online at chaoskidsclub.com. The Recon Havoc Podcast. How would you like to save money on nearly all your prescription drugs? We've set up a special toll-free number for the RX Outreach Program. They're a nonprofit company whose mission it is to make prescription drugs more affordable to the masses. They don't take insurance, and in many cases, your prescriptions are even cheaper than your co-pays. They carry thousands of different prescription drugs, so whatever you're taking, there's a good chance they have it. No coupons are required, and this is not a discount card. It is pure savings on your prescription drugs. They specialize in generic meds for any chronic health needs you have. Call with your prescription and find out for free how little you can pay for your prescription drugs. Remember, we don't take insurance, so call right now. 800-586-9885. 800-586-9885. 800-586-9885. That's 800-586-9885. Tickets, official Huntsville Havoc merchandise, and more, go to HuntsvilleHavoc.com. Visit our website at ReconHavoc.com, look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and listen, follow, and subscribe to the Recon Havoc podcast on your favorite platform to keep up with the only weekly podcast covering the Huntsville Havoc, the Recon Havoc podcast.